Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. They did it. Lawmakers in the Connecticut General Assembly passed a nearly $43.5 billion budget on time. Coming up, Mark Pazniokas, Connecticut Mirror's Capitol Bureau Chief, will break down what's in the plan and how it will affect you and your family. First, we're going to focus on some legislation that builds on criminal justice reform in the state. One of the bills heading to Governor Lamont's desk will track racial disparities in the system. To tell us more, joining me in studio is Anderson Curtis. He's a smart justice field organizer with the ACLU of Connecticut. Anderson, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. And for our listeners, if you want to join the conversation this hour, the number 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Anderson, I mentioned this uh, phrase, a smart justice. Uh, tell us first, what is this initiative? So smart justice is a campaign um, connected to the National ACLU here in Connecticut. Uh, smart justice is focusing on ending mass incarceration, reducing the prison population in Connecticut by 50%, and addressing racial disparities. And we do that through our legislative priorities. And so there's a package of bills that made it through this legislative session before we get to those and the details. I wanted to learn more about the people working on the Smart Justice Campaign, you being one of them. This isn't just a, a topic that you feel strongly about. You have a very personal connection. Uh, tell us more. Yes, uh, I myself am formerly incarcerated. Uh, I've been out 12 years. Um, and have experienced a host of collateral consequences in that time. Um, one of the things I was able to do was earn an associate's degree from Gateway Community College. Um, but, you know, more importantly, this opportunity with the Smart Justice Campaign really connects with me because uh, I love working with people, serving people, and that's our core value uh, on our shirt, people, not prisons. Mm. You mentioned collateral consequences. So walk us through. We've talked about this on the show before with uh, different guests, but uh, for someone who has a prison record, when you finally do your time and get out, uh, what are some of the first things that you notice uh, when you're trying to get a job or to find housing? Right. So the barriers in employment and housing are, are varied. Uh, according to different people. But, you know, my story is not unique. There's over 40,000 people roughly living with a criminal record in the state of Connecticut. And we all experience the same daily struggles, you know, finding access to employment to continue to, uh, you know, live a life worth living, taking care of our families, you know, because there are families behind us. Uh, you have uh, testified before the legislature um, this session. So give us an example, again, of something that you uh experience personally if you were finding, you know, looking for an apartment, what was the first thing a landlord says to you when you divulge that you have a criminal history? So, you know, being transparent about who I am and uh, talking with different landlords, actually, I, I moved here to Hartford uh, from New Haven. And so, you know, I experienced that. And uh, sometimes, you know, some opportunities were closed to me, you know, because of my past. But, you know, that just continues to give me drive and motivation to do the work I do. And then others that are working on the Smart Justice Initiative also formerly incarcerated. Correct. 
Yes, we are a campaign led by the formerly incarcerated, uh, which is one of the smart justice values of centering the leadership. Those closest to the problem or closest to the solution get farthest from the resources. And so, you know, that really drives the work that we do. But more importantly, we work with people across many different backgrounds. Again, our shirt says people, not prisons. And we were able to connect with people through us all being justice impacted. And so, you know, the criminal justice system involves and impacts everybody, whether you may have served time in prison or not. Uh, some of the bills that uh, made it through, uh, squeaked through before uh, the midnight deadline before the Connecticut General Assembly. Uh, one of them uh, is uh, asking for more prosecutorial oversight. So tell us about that bill. Yes. Yeah, so that bill will um, highlight some of the uh, things going on with prosecutors' decisions, uh, create more efficiency. And so we were very glad to work with uh, chief state's attorney to get that bill done and other legislators. And, and, you know, again, people coming out for the campaign, people coming out for public hearings, people coming out for rallies, you know, and people really demonstrated that uh, this bill is a bill that's time has come that through the participation we saw. So the proposal would require uh, the Division of Criminal Justice, uh, which employs prosecutors, to actually report data, demographic data, about people accused or convicted of a crime, about prosecutors' actions on charging, plea deals, diversionary programs, and sentencing. And then all this data uh, will be published by the Office of Policy and Management beginning no later than July 1st. I mean, why is that important to find and look at this data, Anderson? Well, the data is important because uh, on the back end, you know, uh, Connecticut is fifth and seventh nationally in incarcerating black and brown men. And so we really like to know how we got there. But more importantly, this data will help us all to move forward to create efficiency and fairness and transparency in a system that, quite frankly, could use it. So when we hear about racial disparities in the system, this data will then help lawmakers uh, and, and others, advocates uh, for the formerly incarcerated, actually see uh, the the human cost of incarcerate, incarceration and then to work on changing other policies? Correct. Correct. So this is a strong launching pad for uh, criminal justice reform. Um, it was really uh, inspiring to be able to go from a campaign where we were working with gubernatorial candidates on criminal justice reform to the uh, prosecutorial data report outs that the justice com uh, the governor was able to do with the transition communities. And then now working with legislators to get this law passed is just a great step forward for the state of Connecticut. Mm. Was it difficult uh, to get a buy-in from, uh, say, the chief state's attorney's office, again, looking at how prosecutors are doing their jobs? Uh, it took several conversations, but again, you know, uh, it's just indicative that, you know, this is, the time has come for this, you know, and I, and I believe that everybody was really working together, that uh, this will make Connecticut a forefront. And, uh, my executive director like to use the phrase tip of the spear, and we're going to really drive this home and continue to work together with all uh, these offices to have a fair just, criminal justice system. And this is something that Governor Lamont um, had indicated that he would support from the beginning as a way to carry on the second chance work under former Governor Malloy? Um, you know, with some strong urging from our campaign, you know, the governor was able to publish a criminal justice platform. You know, we were able to continue to keep that in the conversation during the gubernatorial election. And uh, to his credit, he continued to work on it with us. And uh, this is where we are today through those efforts. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that the motto, people, not prisons, 
uh, it, when you talk with people around the state, um, for those uh, who don't have any experience with the criminal justice system, um, you know, describe a little more about what are some of the attitudes of beliefs that people have when they realize you may have a, a past criminal record and how they view you, Anderson. Well, you know, there's, that was really the really exciting part of the campaign. There's uh, people coming up and just asking, what does the shirt mean? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so what we were able to do was, you know, put some humanity and dignity back into the conversation to let know that, you know, people living with a criminal record have families. Those families have communities, you know what I mean? And all of us across the state of Connecticut are working together to build a stronger, more efficient Connecticut because people in prison are coming home one day. And I think it's better for the state if those people have access to employment and housing. Mm. So what happens um, if they struggle to find stable housing or to find a job? Is it easier to recidivate? Unfortunately, yes, it increased the likelihood. But, you know, again, um, people want to change. People want to make a better life for themselves. People don't wake up and say, I want to recidivate today. People wake up and they want to go look for another job. They want to continue to pound the pavement. And so these laws will hopefully increase their ability to have access to employment and housing, which is access to a better life. Uh, in the studio with me is Anderson Curtis, a field organizer with the ACLU of Connecticut. Uh, he and others working on the Smart Justice Initiative, uh, again, to uh, further criminal justice reform in the state of Connecticut. Um, if you uh, know of this initiative, if you have thoughts about uh, Connecticut's uh, progress uh, with uh, criminal justice reform, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, here on Where We Live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, last night, Anderson, another bill under the Smart Justice uh, Initiative uh, passed. And again, it's looking at these collateral consequences that you mentioned. So what will it do uh, for the formerly incarcerated when we look at uh, barriers to housing to employment? Okay, so this council will uh, have some recommendations for the legislature next year through having community conversations, uh, talking about the regulatory barriers that the formerly incarcerated and people living with a criminal record face in the state. But, you know, more importantly, it's it's about really just broadening the conversation and the support that we already received. You know, people really invited themselves into the Smart Justice campaign. They responded to our ads on social media. They turned out for our, our public hearings. Um, it's just really exciting to have someone re- RSVP to an event, show up. I'm able to give them a People Not Prison shirt, and then the next day they're lobbying with me at the Capitol. Uh, when uh, you talk about uh, this council, can you tell us who'll sit on the council? Uh, there's various stakeholders that uh, have experience in the process of people working around uh, collateral consequences. Uh, so it's 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 a wide-ranging council, and uh, we believe that it it really serve the uh, community through creating the recommendations that will you know come for stronger legislation next session. Mm-hmm. So what work is left to be done, uh, Anderson? Again, there were uh, several bills that you were hoping under the Smart Justice Initiative to pass. Uh, some of them did, but there's still more work to be done. Oh, there's a lot of work to be done. Again, you know, one of our goals is to cut the prison population by 50 percent, you know, and so we're working closely and we're looking at that. Uh, we're working in pretrial. We're working in, uh, you know, the revocation process. There's a lot of work that various uh, people across the state of Connecticut are going to get involved with, hopefully, and continue to support us as we move forward to make this state a better place for everyone. 
when you mentioned uh, this 50% goal, um, so what are some ways to get there? I understand uh, through some of the testimony that you and others have given uh, that the state spends more money on uh, the prison system than on social services. Yes, you know, unfortunately that is a reality here. And so, you know, um, finding uh, alternatives to incarceration, uh, just different ways to look at uh, reducing the pretrial population. Um, and, you know, again, uh, just creating access to employment and housing, which will help people that are on parole. So, you know, not just eliminating barriers for people with criminal records, but there's people in different, various situations of the criminal justice system. And we just hope that we can have more outcomes that don't end up with people being incarcerated. Mm. Uh, when we talk about uh, people uh, being incarcerated, often um, that pipeline starts uh, when individuals are young. Is enough being done to help uh, young men and women to avoid the criminal justice system, Anderson? That's a very interesting question. You know, there's always so much work to be done. You know what I mean? My story is not unique. You know, this plays out across the state of Connecticut. But more importantly, you know, the people that are behind these um, movements to change things, to make things better for children, you know, to have more access to a future. Uh, Anderson Curtis, again, is a field organizer with Smart Justice, an initiative under the ACLU of Connecticut. You mentioned, Anderson, before we go, uh, that you were incarcerated uh, 12 years ago. Uh, how's life been treating you so far? Life is life is good. You know, it's, it's a lot of hard work. Uh, you know, I have a great support system. And, you know, my faith has carried me a long way. So, you know, uh, there's opportunities out there. There's hope out there. But, you know, um, it's not easy. You know what I mean? But... Again, I think we're off to a great start. Uh, I just want to thank everybody that worked with us and supported us through this legislative session. And, you know, there's a lot more to do. And we've gotten this far. We can go a lot more farther with more people coming to help us. Anderson, a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. After the break, we're going to expand our focus to the new two-year budget and other bills that made it through this legislative session. Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror, will be in studio to explain what we need to know. Do you have a question? Join us, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's no doubt municipalities are pleased that the Connecticut General Assembly passed a new two-year budget on time. But what exactly is in it? According to the Connecticut Mirror, a majority of Democrats hailed it as a historic plan that averts a big deficit without raising income tax rates. It makes key investments in education and health care and promotes long-term fiscal stability. Now, there's a lot to talk about, so I'm pleased to welcome back to the show Mark Pazniokas, Capital Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. Mark, welcome back. Good morning. And I should tell our listeners uh, that is your birthday today. Happy birthday to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the Connecticut General Assembly always helps me feel a year older <laughs> this time of year. Uh, so you were up uh, late at night. Um, earlier, we were talking with Anderson Curtis, a field organizer with the ACLU Smart Justice Initiative. Um, a lot of uh, criminal justice bills uh, making it to Governor Lamont's uh, desk. Um, is this striking to you uh, or more of the same after Governor Malloy's legacy of second chance? I would never call it more of the same because that sounds dismissive. But it is a continuation of, of something that Connecticut took the lead on as far as 
reforming criminal justice, both how the prisons work, how the courts work, to give a little greater focus on how to divert people from court and the criminal justice system whenever possible, how to avoid tagging people with criminal records that can haunt them for a lifetime. Um, Governor Daniel Malloy began that. He really turned Connecticut into a national laboratory with the assistance of some national think tanks, such as the Vera Institute. Um, and Governor Lamont has adopted this. He is not as passionate about it as Governor Malloy was, but his administration has certainly embraced it. Uh, they have hired, as Governor Malloy did, uh, some, a specialist in the Office of Policy and Management to track these issues. And the other thing we've seen that's very interesting is, you know, the guest you just had with the ACLU of Connecticut. I mean, it's a fascinating approach to this is to bring people who have who have served time in Connecticut prisons, uh, to have them doing the lobbying, have them um, tell their stories at the Capitol. Um, to be there every day. That stuff really makes a difference, and it did this year. The other thing I'll say is um, this was an interesting year for a, a state senator named Gary Winfield. Um, he's a Democrat from New Haven. He is the first non-lawyer to be the co-chair of the Judiciary Committee, and he has shown himself this session to be a pretty good negotiator. He got through you know, two bills that could have been very, very difficult, uh, bills that uh, require more transparency as to how state prosecutors work, mm -hmm. and uh, a police accountability bill that was uh, put together after two fatal police shootings, uh, the one in Wethersfield and one in New Haven. And Gary Winfield sat down with the prosecutors. He sat mm -hmm. down with police officers and chiefs of police and, and came up with something that was acceptable to law enforcement. But it does kind of make some advancements. Uh, we're going to be able to track police use of force better than we were able to do before. Um, and the transparency into how prosecutors work is very important because that, that scene is sort of the next frontier. Um, the criminal, uh, the crime rates have come down in Connecticut. The rates of incarceration have come down. And but, you know, people tell me the low hanging fruit has all been picked. And now you have to really look at, OK, how are decisions being made by prosecutors when people come in the door? And, and you know, ultimately everything prosecutors do is done in open court. So there is that degree of transparency. But the decision process and tracking things, how is it different in Waterbury from Hartford or Manchester, that kind of thing. And this is the stuff they hope to learn from, just as uh, Connecticut has done incredible tracking on police motor vehicle stops where you can really see patterns uh, where there may be problems with racial profiling. And, you know, the police, after kind of complaining about that and trying to, uh, they were very defensive at first, they have actually uh, embraced it in many cases, and we see changes. So it's kind of a cool thing. This police accountability uh, bill that you're talking about, uh, being very specific, uh, uh, telling police departments uh, that their officers cannot shoot into a moving vehicle unless they feel like their life is in danger, that's something that came out of that Weathersfield uh, case just a few weeks ago? Yeah. The thing about that is it's really not as much of a change as you think. Um, that's what police officers are taught now, um, at least according to the curriculum I've, I've looked at for the academy in Connecticut. Um, ultimately, it's up to the uh, – it's the decision of the officer in that moment of crisis. 
Um, but I think what this does, it reinforces what officers are taught. Uh, there's an educational component. But yeah, in the, at the end of the day, um, if an officer just, you know, steps to the front of a vehicle to get the attention of, of, a, of a driver they're trying to stop, and that driver comes forward and that officer feels threatened, he still can fire. And the, the law in Connecticut and every place else is tilted to the police uh, that it's a question of their state of mind, what is a reasonable fear, and that has not changed by this bill. Mm. And that's uh, based on a U.S. Supreme Court decision. Yeah. Uh, when we think about, we've talked about this before on the sh- show, uh, Mark, again, uh, depending on where a police officer is employed, there is a lot of variability uh, in the department. So anything in this bill that will make it more standard across the board of how police departments operate? You know, you're talking about police culture and you're talking about training. And le- the legislature is limited as to what it can do in this regard. Legislators, understandably, love to legislate when they see something like this, they want to act. Um, sometimes these things can have instantaneous results. Sometimes it's a question of a statement being sent from Hartford. And then the question is, how do the police embrace it? Some departments uh, already do, do these things. That, uh, and some of this goes back to the 70s. You know, The New York City Police Department was one of the first in the country where they said, uh, they train their people do not shoot into a moving motor vehicle that uh, first off it's very hard to know you know what you're going to hit and the other thing is even if the driver is trying to assault a police officer killing the driver disabling the driver isn't always going to protect the officer it's not going to protect the community because you now have a very heavy moving uh, motor vehicle without anyone at the controls Mark Pazniokas is the Capitol Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. We're doing a wrap-up of the legislative session ending early this morning. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Mark, I wanted to move on to the budget, actually passed on time. Uh, Tell us uh, exactly uh, what kind of challenge they had to get the deficit, how how big of a deficit, and uh, how challenging was it for them to get it in balance, so to speak? You're not going to quiz me on this. I, I didn't. I was told that this was going to be multiple choice. Um, it's this was. Uh, it was a significant problem, but it's. It was the easiest budget year that the legislature has faced in some time. As the listeners of this radio station, I'm sure, are well aware, Connecticut has been in a perpetual state of fiscal crisis. It seems since the Great Recession of 2008, and the roots of that go back even further. Have to do with the unfunded pension liabilities that are really what is crushing, what are crushing this state uh, and do remain a threat to its uh, fiscal health. Um, These budgets, they're never as good as the majority parties say they are. They're never as bad as the minority parties say they are. Um, One of the key things that comes out of this is there, there is a degree of stability, at least for you know, the next few years, um, the Lamont administration got some big problems off the table. One of them is this litigation they were facing from the Connecticut hospitals. It's, it's kind of complicated stuff, the but there was tax. the hospital yeah. provider tax. <laughs> and this was a liability uh, potentially in excess of a billion dollars, and they've reached a settlement. Uh, and, you know, $160 million off the top of my head, I believe that was the number. 
that's a big thing because if a court ruled for the hospitals and all of a sudden you you got a billion dollar liability, obviously that that could be huge. The other part of stability is there is a ton of money going into the reserve, the rainy day fund. There's $2 billion. There could be another $900 million going into it. Uh, Republicans say the Democrats should not be so proud of themselves that the money that's going in here, they had no choice about because in the bipartisan budget of 2017, there was something called a volatility cap, which actually was a really great fiscal reform, um, which requires certain surplus funds to go into the reserve. And Connecticut right now is... Um, is better positioned to face a recession than they, they were before. Democrats say, hey, we were part of that bipartisan budget too, so we get credit for that. Uh, whenever uh, there's budget negotiations, uh, residents, of course, are concerned with uh, sales tax hikes and other uh, calls to raise uh, uh, taxes, including income tax. This is something that Governor Lamont said he didn't want to do related to the income tax. So what's in this budget that's going to impact you and me? Sure. <laughs> The governor pretty much got what he wanted on that. Um, let's just talk quickly what's not in there. Um, there are no income tax rate increases. Uh, the progressives really wanted to hit the rich with uh, capital tax, uh, capital gains surcharge. That did not happen. So what you will see is, uh, Lucy, if you had any, if you have any bad habits uh, having to do with drinking, vaping, <laughs> that will become a little bit more expensive. Um, those the so-called sin taxes are always the easiest ones to raise in Connecticut or any place else. Uh, they have the twin benefits of bringing in money, and in some cases, they discourage people from doing things that they probably either shouldn't do or perhaps should do in moderation. Um, you will pay a little bit more if you go out to a restaurant. There's going to be a one percent uh, tacked on to your restaurant bill on top of the sales tax of six plus percent. Um, but they did avoid major, major hits. Um, they did delay some tax cuts that had been on the books to take effect. Those things should always be viewed as something that will be vulnerable because it's a lot easier to uh, not give somebody a tax cut that perhaps they don't even know that was coming. <laughs> Uh, something also, uh, plastic bags uh, starting uh, fairly soon, I believe, 10 cents per bag, but hopefully there's going to be a ban on plastic bags in the future. That's going to be money that the state won't have in a few years. Yeah. And that's, again, it's a little bit like a, the syntax. Um, some of this is to raise money. Some of it is to change behavior. Uh, plastic bags um, are a huge problem in a couple areas. You know, they've, they've, you know, some of the people focus on, well, they don't they don't uh, they don't decompose when they're in a landfill, but I think the bigger problem is they really gum up the works on these uh, recycling plants, uh, single stream recycling. Plastic bags are really a big problem for this. Uh, there's also a litter problem, and it and it is a overall a, a resource problem. It's you know should should this stuff be used? So yeah, the goal is to get people to stop using them. Um, I do have reusable bags in my car. I just have to remember to bring them into the store. 
Mark Pasniokis is with us, Capitol Bureau Chief of the Connecticut Mirror. We're talking about uh, what lawmakers accomplished uh, in passing a budget on time, also some other bills that made it uh, through um, before the deadline at midnight. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to circle back to calls to raise the income tax because there was a group of wealthy residents who said, hey, Governor Lamont, we want to be taxed more. One of them's calling in right now, Bill Collins from Norwalk. Bill, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks a lot. And I, I admire Mark for being up and awake and cogent at this hour after the session ends. The bar is low. <laughs> He's good at his job all these years. Uh, so, Bill, again, uh, what's your take as one of the wealthy residents uh, signing on to a letter to the Governor Lamont's administration did the same, I believe, for Governor Malloy asking for a hike in the income tax? This is something that Governor Lamont didn't want to do. It's not in this budget. Yeah, well, we're pretty disappointed. Uh, our group is called Fair Share, and it's made up of people who have been, some have worked hard, others, uh, like me, have been pretty lucky, and we have what we consider to be a little more income than we really need, and, um, you know, but most people who are in that category find ways to give it away, much more effective for the welfare of the state if uh, the upper limits of the income are taxed a little higher. So we proposed a 2% increase in the income tax in the top bracket. Very few people would pay this, uh, but prosperous people would. And uh, feeling it wouldn't really hurt anybody. Uh, there was a lot of feed, a lot of pushback, naturally, from folks who don't want to pay more taxes. And they say, well, uh, rich people will move out of the state if you tax them a little more. And the disappointing part was some people in the legislature seemed to believe this propaganda. Uh, it's really a lot of baloney. Uh, folks who are making a pretty good income could afford a little more in their income tax, and nobody's going to move away. Can you see somebody from a gated community in Greenwich uh, moving away from the club and the restaurants and uh, one hour from New York and that sort of thing? It's it's just propaganda. So we were disappointed that Governor Malloy and the legislature did not seek to solve part of their financial problem by raising the uh, uh, top bracket tax level by a couple of percent. Uh, Mark Pasniokas is here with me. Is it a bunch of baloney, this fear that uh, the wealthy will leave if the income tax goes up, Mark? The statistics are such that there is material that, bo- that both sides can latch on to. There, there, uh, there is a loss of income. There are people, it seems that the people who are leaving Connecticut for whatever reason, I mean, Mr. Collins makes a very good point. Um, there are many, many reasons why people live where they live, obviously job connection to uh, family, um, you know, you get you get older, you, you know, where are your kids, where are your grandkids? And I think Mr. Collins makes a very good point that it's never one thing. Um, the scary thing with Connecticut tax revenue is uh, Connecticut does rely on some very wealthy folks. That tends to be volatile in the, in the sense that if one or two people leave, for whatever reason, you actually can feel it. You know, in New Jersey, there was that case of a hedge fund guy who left, and they had a big hole in their state budget based on one person deciding to go south. For whatever reason, he had yeah. to go south. 
Here's a stat that uh, I know Governor Malloy paid attention to. We asked him about it, but now uh, Governor Lamont uh, uh, in office uh, that these this top one percent of taxpayers paid thirty six percent of all income taxes in twenty fourteen. So if one of them leaves, it leaves, we're in big trouble. Yeah, and maybe not one, but yes. The point is, again, you look at that statistic, and it's a scary statistic. You look at an analysis that Bloomberg did, looking at IRS and census data. And, you know, the the folks leaving Connecticut tend to have more money than the folks who are coming in. Um, My colleague Keith Faneff did a very detailed look at this. Um, It was called The the Myth of the the Millionaire with the Suitcase. And again, it was a very nuanced piece. Um, You know, I'll go back to, you know, the caller. He does he does make uh, a point that I think resonates with people. It's folks. Folks generally just don't pick up and leave over taxes. You know, certainly there are people within Connecticut, you know, when they're empty nesters, if they're in a a community with, you know, very good schools and have higher property taxes, perhaps they may, you know, they may move on but stay in the area because, again, it's proximity to your kids, you know. If you like your kids, <laughs> I, I do uh, want to bring up the the mansion tax, which I do believe uh, passed, where uh, people who sell their homes worth two and a half million or more, and they have the gall to leave Connecticut, you're going to pay a tax on that. <laughs> so the way that <laughs> way that works, if you remain a Connecticut taxpayer, you basically get this convey this extra conveyance tax back. It's a credit, but if you leave Connecticut, that's our little goodbye gift. <laughs> uh, Bill, what do you think of that mansion tax? Well, the mansion tax is uh, better than nothing, certainly, uh, but it really doesn't amount to much. Uh, I think what we overlook is historically uh, young people move to Connecticut. They get out of college. Uh, they move into Connecticut in their uh, in their U-Haul trailers and vans and, and start uh, settle life in an apartment someplace. And they live here and work hard and prosper and make money. And when it's time for them to leave, whether they like to play golf, we have friends who moved out of the state, uh, not terribly rich, but they love to play golf, and so they're in South Carolina now. And plenty of folks <clears throat> move to Florida. We're never going to stop that, I'm afraid, until climate change washes Florida away. But uh, this has been the normal progression for, who knows, ever since they invented U-Haul. Uh, young people have moved in in the U-Haul and they uh, succeed and they when they move out it's in a Mayflower van. So there's this progression that uh, some folks maybe with other purposes in mind have latched onto and say well the rich people are moving out. Um, but it's, it's just the normal way of life and uh, I don't think the mansion tax is going to have much impact on that and I don't think another couple percent on the top bracket is going to have much effect on that either. Well, thank you, Bill uh, Collins, again, uh, for calling in uh, to give us uh, your perspective. Uh, Mark, before we hit, the, hit some calls, did you want to add anything? Well, just the other aspect of that is Connecticut tries to be competitive with New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. And that's always in at the back of the mind of any Connecticut governor when you look at making the tax system more progressive. Connecticut right now is uh, cheaper for somebody of wealth than to move across the border, say, into Westchester County, where the property taxes are higher, there's an added sales tax, and the income tax is higher. 
You can join our conversation with Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief of the Connecticut Mirror, as we do a legislative wrap-up, 860-275-7266. Michael's calling from Ashford. Michael, go ahead. Hi. Uh, thanks for the call. Uh, Mark, a question to you. Uh, I saw a graph, um, maybe it was in your publication a couple years back, that the pension crisis would peak around 2030 and that it was an order of magnitude sufficient to just crush every you know possible remedy. And I'm wondering, is that still a reality or are we um, beginning to actually, you know, dig ourselves into solvency? Thanks. Well, yes. Um, <clears throat> there were a couple of reasons for that. Um, the way the way that things are structured, there basically was a balloon payment <laughs> that Connecticut was looking at in 2032. Uh, under Governor Malloy, they did smooth that out. Um, they refinanced. You know, it's like you're. It's like if you're facing a, you know, a variable. If you got a variable rate mortgage and you're facing a big balloon payment, you re, you refinance. Um, there's added costs to the state for that, but yes, and the state was facing something that would have just crushed it. Um, there's a similar issue with teacher pensions. There's a similar problem. Um, the legislature in this budget smoothed that out. I will say they did so in a way, again, to use the home refinancing uh, metaphor. They took some money out. They, they they put some money into this budget with that refinancing. They could have done it a little bit later and they could have done it uh, in a way that would not have cost future taxpayers as much. But uh, so there are two, basically there are two issues with these pension problems. One is you do have these cliffs, you have these big balloon payments that the state, you know, when you face, you have to smooth them out. And the other issue is just it's going to take a lot of time because of the failure of the state of Connecticut under the control of uh, governors of both parties, legislatures of both parties just failed to pay into the funds and you cannot correct that mistake uh, it takes time. You cannot correct it in one, two, three, or four years. Uh, real quick, Mark. Uh, also, you mentioned the teacher pensions. Uh, both Governor Malloy and Governor Lamont wanted municipalities to contribute uh, to teacher pensions, but that ended up not making it through. Why? <laughs> because there are a lot of towns. Uh, well, Governor Malloy had a proposal that, quite frankly, was never going to fly. He wanted to uh, have this massive shift, uh, and that shift would have included the unfunded liability that the teacher fund had. And the town said, you know, quite rightly so, hey, wait a minute, that wasn't our decision. And now you want to stick us not just with the normal cost going forward, but with the debt. Um, and the town said, you know, it would be more reasonable to say, okay, have us pay a share. So Governor Lamont comes in and he basically did what the town suggested when they were furious at Governor Malloy. And and the town said, no, we don't want to do that. <laughs> and so the towns were going to get uh, from that meal tax we mentioned, that extra meal tax, that was going to go to the towns to help offset them paying more into the teacher pensions. When they gave up on the towns contributing to the teacher pensions, uh, the state said, fine, you're not going to get the meal tax money. We're going to put that in the general fund. Mm -hmm. So it, it's... The, the thought behind this is should 
the towns have some skin in the game because they're the ones who negotiate the contracts for salaries. And those salaries obviously affect um, ultimately what the pensions are worth. Uh, it is a weird system. You know, it's this two-step system where the state handles all the pension stuff, all the retiree stuff for teachers. Um, but the towns have a lot to say about what ultimately that costs the mm -hmm. state. Um, you, spent, you said you talked about how there's lots of towns. Uh, regionalization also didn't make it through uh, this session, but that'll be a conversation for another time. Mark Paziokas is with me here on Where We Live. He's Capitol Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We're back after a short break. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're doing a legislative wrap-up with Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. We talked a bit about the regular session. There's a special session coming up. We haven't gotten to that just quite yet, but Doug from Fairfield. Uh, Doug, what's your question or comment? Hey, my name is Doug. I'm calling from Fairfield. I live in Bridgeport. Um, I wanted to um, – my comment is about tolls. I wanted to tell Mark that I really admired his journalism. I've lived in several states, and his journalism on structural problems in the Connecticut state budget is some some of the best state budget journalism I've seen in among the states I've lived in. Thank you, thank you. But that's probably a compliment as much or much more uh, than for my colleague Keith Faniff. But we we both appreciate it. A good thank team. You. Yeah, right. Um, but but to both of you. Um, I wanted to, and I just appreciate Connecticut Mirror and WNPR, I wanted to tell you that in your wrap-up this morning that the Connecticut Mirror staff prepared of the of kind of the cheat sheet on the legislative outcomes, I disagree with, your, with, with the staff's assessment that motorists won in the regular session because tolls weren't passed. I'm a, I'm a motorist who believes that, that tolls are a way of burden-sharing for all the reasons Basically, no. Yeah, I, I take your I take your point. That's that that, that and, was not. I, I think I think motorists actually lost. Yeah. and I just wanted to note that. I no, I I, I think to say about it. I, I'm pretty much in the, in the governor's camp on that. No, and your point is well taken. I mean, that was that was a judgmental thing. I, that was sort of a quick thing about just money. And no, you're right. I mean, the, there's a question of ultimately do do motorists win or lose if if we don't do the tolls, if we don't improve the highways and so forth. So mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. So what is the latest on tolls? So the, the governor has to call a special session? Yeah. So the legislature called itself back into session, but their call for special session did not say anything about tolls. Now, that's not that surprising. The one thing of unfinished business for them is the bond package, the borrowing for capital expenditures, school construction, you know, always tops the list or is high, high on the list. Um, the reason they didn't do the bond package, or one of the reasons is it's a bargaining chip. And this is something the administration will use in negotiating with legislators trying to forge majorities in the House and Senate in favor of some form of highway tolls. Uh, right now, it's it's unclear uh, if the votes are there. This governor, this administration has struggled. Uh, they had a pretty good two weeks at the end. They, they got some things done. They seem to right the ship. But tolls has been a huge problem for them politically. Um, they have not shown the ability 
to make the case in a way that uh, that can close the deal. They don't have the votes in the Senate. They say they do in the House, but th- that's kind of a shaky thing. It depends on what they're going to look like. There did seem to be a sizable uh, toll opposition uh, from residents, uh, lawmakers. Is part of the difficulty that uh, there is this belief they see it when they don't think lawmakers are really cutting spending. There's a lot of pork in this budget that was passed. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little about what, what's going to happen this special session. Well, uh, we really don't know. I mean, they eventually will do a bond package. They have to. Um, they want to do some things on economic development. The administration has not said precisely what. They have uh, a, they have a commissioner who, uh, for economic development who also acts as an advisor on the economy to the governor, David David Lehman, uh, former Goldman Sachs partner. And we don't know really what he, they're going to come forward with. Um, they are now going to turn their attention to tolls. They basically abandoned the push for tolls at some point because it just was all-consuming and they lost really track of the budget. Other things like family, paid family and medical leave, which we're going to talk about in a sec, uh, which is one of the biggest things to come out of this session. Um, but again, uh, it's really hard to say. Uh, we don't know when precisely they're going to come back. And uh, the, the sense I get talking to people, when you talk to them privately, you get a very different read. Even people who think tolls would be good public policy, there is a lot of reluctance on the part of Democrats. Uh, in the Senate, they think this is kind of an existential threat to their majority. Uh, until the last election, they were in a power sharing uh, arrangement. It was an 1818 tie in the Senate, and the Democrats learned they don't much like doing that. And they have a nice solid majority of, of 22-14. They would like to retain that. And they have people who won Republican seats in part because of the backlash against President Trump, which, of course, could, could be there again in 2020. The president uh, seems to be hell-bent on being on the ballot again. But tolls, uh, you know, tolls frightens uh, some of the folks in more marginal districts. There's, there's no question about that. Uh, meanwhile, money that a previous uh, legislative session allocated towards this special transportation fund, I think it was sales tax revenue, uh, now being taken uh, and being allocated towards the general fund doesn't help their case. Does not. There's a trust issue. There's always been a trust issue. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that they're operating against. Uh, there was money diverted, although the House Majority Leader said it's not, it's not a raid. <laughs> you know, you can get into the semantics. But yeah, that's an issue. Let's talk about family medical leave, paid family medical leave. This is something uh, that uh, there was um, some disagreement with how it was going to be operated. And now there's a, uh, an agreement. What did uh, Governor Lamont uh, decide on in terms of saying that he'll sign this bill? The governor ran her office promising to deliver this. So it was a shock when he told legislators that he was going to veto the bill. But uh, he wanted a quasi-public authority to run it, not the Department of Labor. He wanted uh, private sector be able to bid on this business, both to manage it and to offer uh, insurance policies, because that's all this is. People get very confused as to what it is. It's a disability insurance uh, program. It will be a mandated insurance policy that you and I will buy. Everybody who has a job will buy because we're going to have one half of 1% payroll tax. And that will get us this disability 
insurance policy. So if you are sick, if you have a family member you need to care for, you will get 12 weeks of wage replacement uh, depending on your income level. Um, that will depend on whether it's 60% or as much as 95%. Uh, the poorer folks are, the higher the rate of wage replacement. The thinking behind that is the working poor cannot take any time off, even giving up 10% uh, of their pay. Whereas some, if somebody's making $100,000 and they have a kid, and if you get 60% of you know your your money back, uh, your wages back, that's you know you can get by on that. You have savings, and it's a good benefit. Mm. We've only got a couple minutes left, uh, Mark Pazniokas. Uh, all in all, this was was this a difficult legislative session for uh, Governor Lamont's first term? Yes, uh, the governor. The governor has a little bit of Donald Trump in him, and before Democrats scream, what I, I, I don't mean how he treats people. I don't mean um, a lot of the things we associate with President Trump. But what I do mean is he seems to be distracted at times. He seems to seize things and priorities shift, not tolls, not getting the budget on time, but other things. And the word at the Capitol is uh, he could be frustrating to deal with, that people would think he was on board with something, and then a week later, he seemed to be less enthused. And so he has, he has struggled with that. I think his staff did a good job, ultimately in the final weeks, of focusing him, focusing the administration on getting this budget passed, getting it passed on time. And again, the probably the biggest thing they can boast about is there's a measure of stability in this budget. Mark Pazniokas again, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, they've got a lot of great in-depth uh, pieces at ctmirror.org if you want to read more about the winners and losers of the 2019 legislative session. Mark, as always, thank you for joining us. We hope you have a great birthday. Thank you, Lucy. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to Lydia Brown and Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. As always, thanks for listening.